I'm so glad you're here today. We're going to be continuing in our teaching series on the book of Isaiah. If you're just joining us, we've been in a series on Isaiah. Today we're in chapter 43. And look out, y'all. I got two Bibles today. Settle in. Now, why two Bibles? Well, I am convinced Isaiah 43 is, just as I was kind of talking about it, talking about with my wife, she's like, oh, that's where that famous verse is. Oh, that's where that famous verse is. I even think we have artwork in our house with verses on it that came from Isaiah 43. There will probably be something in this chapter you go, oh, that, that, that's where that came from. I've been tweeting that. I didn't know where it came from. It came from Isaiah 43. Uh, and so we're going to look first at the truth of Isaiah 43. And then we're going to spend our, our first minutes looking at the truth. I'll just do an overview and let's get the truth. But then I want to do what really you're supposed to do in all sermons. And that's truth and application. Truth and application. It's, you know, if you just have application with no truth, that's just self-help, right? That's just, I mean, who knows if that'll get you where you need to be. But if you just have truth with no application, it's sterile. There, there's no power. You know, where does this stuff intersect with your life, with where you are? And I believe that Isaiah 43, which remember was prophesied to the exiles, to those children of Israel who've been carried from Jerusalem and are now in Babylon, he's telling them, here's how to live in Babylon. And there's some prophecy and some stuff. And I believe some of these prophecies were literally fulfilled in the exile and I want to show you how some Israelite exiles, how I think they applied Isaiah 43. So truth, then application. So we'll look at two places. I'm getting ahead of myself. First, the truth. Let's walk through. Let's kind of do an overview of, of what's in here in Isaiah 43. Start in verse 1. But now, thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel. See if this sounds familiar. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned. And the flames shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Sheba in exchange for you. Now, I think this verse is talking about, I think this is reference to Cyrus. God raised up, remember the Assyrians, he raised up the Babylonians, and now the people are in, you know, in exile, they're captured by the Babylonians. He's raising up the Persian Empire, particularly Cyrus, who's going to wipe out the Babylonians, and Cyrus is the one who's going to let the people of Israel go back home. And uh, Cyrus's empire extended all the way to Egypt. Uh, it's interesting, Babylon and Assyria, they, they, they made some inroads, but they were never able to capture and hold Egypt. Cyrus was. So it's like God saying, I'm getting you out of exile, and I'm even giving Cyrus Egypt, Cush and Sheba, in exchange for you. There's your ransom in this whole exchange. Because, verse 4, you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you, I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring, think about this, the ethnic children of Israel, I'll bring your offspring from the east and from the west, I will gather you. I'll say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who's called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. You hear that? These are the Jews, God's chosen people, ethnic Jews, being called from the east and the west and the north and the south to return to their sacred homeland, to the promised land. 
Personally, I do not believe that these prophecies were fully fulfilled in 539 B.C. Remember, Isaiah's writing it in 700. He's writing it to the exiles. That's 150 years later. So 539 B.C. was the year the first Jews were allowed to come back from Babylon to their home in the Promised Land. But that was really just from the east, if you think about it, to the west. This is global. This is east, west, north, south. So I don't think those prophecies were fulfilled in 539 B.C. I do think we should consider how we are starting to see them fulfilled in our generation, in our lifetime. Starting in the late 1800s, 1900s, what's happening? Israel becomes a state, Israel becomes a nation, and Jewish people from all over the world are doing what? Returning to their ancient homeland. Isaiah's calling his shot. He's saying this is what God's going to do, and I think, I think we're seeing it. And one day we'll see it in an even fuller measure. Okay, so remember the courtroom scene? Uh, this motif is continued in Isaiah where God says, all right, I'm God. All y'all idols that want to be God, okay, let's have a little courtroom scene. You bring out your witnesses, you bring out your evidence, and I'll bring out mine. He says, God says, bring out my people, bring out my evidence. Bring out the people who are blind yet have eyes, who are deaf yet have ears. He's talking about the children of Israel. They're stubborn, they're rebellious, they're still my witnesses. And everybody's like, uh, God, are you... <clears throat> Are you sure you want these people as your witnesses? Yes. So let me see if I understand this. You want to call the blind people to testify to what they've seen. (laughs) That's right. And you want the deaf people to come and tell all about what they've heard. Yep. Okay. Why? Because God's showing his saving power. It's about what he does, not about what his people do can do. It's about his power and his glory. Not about the, he, did, he doesn't pick the high and mighty and the powerful to use. It's his power that's displayed in blindness and deafness. Verse 9, all of the nations gather together, together and the people's assembles. Who among them can declare this and show us the former things? Let them bring their witnesses to prove them right. Let them hear and say, it is true. And then he looks at Israel and he goes, you, you want to know where my evidence is? It's you all. The fact that you still exist after all that's been done, you are my witnesses, declares the Lord. You're my servant whom I've chosen that you may know and believe and understand. Isn't that something? I picked you so that you may know and believe and understand that I am Yahweh. I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I am the Lord. I, I am the Lord. And besides me there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you, and you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. Also, henceforth, I am he, and there's none who can deliver from my hand. I work, and who can turn it back? In other words, when I do something, who can prevent it? Who can hinder it? Now, may I? I'll be brief. May I insert here just one little word about Bible translations? Bible translations. You may have noticed, uh, you may sometimes wonder, uh, why sometimes I quote King James Version, and other times I use modern English translations, and I often talk from modern English translations. Um, Most of the scripture that I have memorized is from the King James Version. I learned most of it as a child, in the back of a minivan, under great duress. Uh, And so I was forced to memorize all this scripture. It's not, of course, until I'm an adult that I realized what a precious treasure my parents gave me. And so to parents and grandparents, whether by bribery or by threat of force, whatever it takes uh, to get your kids to memorize Scripture, 
And in the ministries right now that are happening, kids are memorizing scripture. So they're helping you, but nothing can replace a mom or a dad doing this or a grandma, grandpa, parent. Um, what a treasure you're giving your kids. Now, I learned it in the King James, so I quote it in the King James. And if you're a shrewd listener and you've been at Coleman First Baptist a long time, you'll notice why do, why do I, sometimes our pastor uses King James, sometimes he uses other things. Uh, it, it sounds like you can't really tell which translation our pastor prefers. And that's correct. I love them all. I love ye, and I love thou, and I love, okay, I, I love them all. Um, uh, the fact is simply this. Um, when people say, well, I prefer this translation, I always wonder, what do they mean by that? Usually, I guess they mean, I prefer what I'm comfortable with, or this makes sense to me. But the fact is, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, and the New Testament is written in Koine Greek. My primary language is not Hebrew, and my biblical Greek's been dead longer than Lazarus. Uh, <laughs> you know, a little rusty from seminary. Uh, uh, presumably, I'm, ostensibly, I'm supposed to know both these languages. But my primary language is not Hebrew, and my primary language is not Greek. My primary language is English, and Kentucky English at that. You with me? So, why am I making all this? That's why we need to understand what the Hebrew says. That's what's most important. And every now and then, I think that, that there's a chance for me to illustrate this as your pastor. Uh, so, 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 this is a great example. I work, and who can turn it back? Look at this same verse. In, it means who can prevent it. The same verse in King James can be a little misleading, and that's why we need modern translations. Yea, before the day was, I am he, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. So far, so good. It sounds, just, sounds very modern. I will work, and who shall let it? And that's great. I, there's even sermons. Will you let the Lord work? But the problem is, that's not what that means at all. In 1611... Let meant prevent or hinder or turn back. The only way I can see let in modern English used that way is in tennis. When the ball hits the net and goes over and you replay the point, they call that a let because the net prevented it. It's a, it's a hindrance. Um, and who shall let it means who shall prevent it. But if you didn't know any better, you'd think that somehow you were letting God work. Why do I bring this up? What's my point? Of all 